ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. Becoming a monthly sustainer for a mere $5 or $10 helps me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else. You can help support the podcast by going to seansrussiablog.org. Though the fact that Tsarist Russia and the Soviet Union were multi-ethnic empires is widely recognized, we still tend to think of them as explicitly Russian. But what about the many ethnic minorities? How were they both products and producers of empire? Eric Scott tackles these questions by looking at the place of the Georgian diaspora in Russia to show how its political, economic, and cultural repertoires made their mark on Russia's 20th century. Eric Scott is an associate professor of history at the University of Kansas who specializes in modern Russia, comparative empires, migration, and diasporas. He's the author of several publications on contemporary Russia and Eurasia. His most recent book is Familiar Strangers, The Georgian Diaspora and the Evolution of Soviet Empire, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Eric Scott. Because your subject is so interesting, Georgian diaspora within Russia and the Soviet Union, I thought I would uh, we would start by just asking how did you come about writing this book and getting interested in this subject? Well, I first encountered Georgia really in Moscow in the late 90s as an undergraduate student and upon arriving in the city and spending some time there I was really struck by how multi-ethnic this place was even after the collapse of the Soviet Union how multi-ethnic and how much the city was composed of cultures and peoples from from the former Soviet republics and Within this, the Georgian element seemed particularly visible and unique. And I think like everyone else who goes to Russia, the first thing I gravitated towards was Georgian food. And I was able to dine at the Aragvi restaurant, which later would, would figure quite prominently in my book. But also I was living in central Moscow around the corner from a Georgian cultural center where there were events and also managed to catch a Georgian film series. And so all of these things really grabbed my interest as something very vibrant, uh, very visible, and very demonstratively non-Russian in the center of the Russian capital. And so after graduating, I followed these interests, I suppose to be honest, followed my palate to Tbilisi, where I worked for several years. First for a community exchange program that brought me around the country. And it was a very interesting time to be in Georgia. This is the early 2000s. My job required me to travel to all of these regions in the country, which are very different, and uh, was able to encounter things like the Stalin Museum in Gori, which is a very odd place, virtually unchanged since the, the Soviet period. There have been, in recent years, some attempts to, to explain this very hagiographic uh, depiction of the leader's life, and also considerable time in Western Georgia, uh, which had undergone a, a civil war about 10 years earlier, uh, but just the, the imprint of the Soviet period in this, in this part of this corner of the former Soviet Union was both unusual, but also quite palpable. And, you know, just to give you, you know, one example, uh, you know, in Western Georgia, you know, these towns are largely built on the Soviet grid in the city centers and, and they have the same sorts of parks, but, but the houses in Western Georgia were 
you know, two and three story large houses with, with courtyards that uh, were basically built on the proceeds of, of these goods that Georgians specialized in in the Soviet Union, citrus, uh, tobacco, tea, and had fallen into really spectacular disrepair at this time. But, but you could see that there was this, this incredible prosperity in this non-Russian region that, that at the time was, was, was rather impoverished. And you wondered sort of how this came to be and how it all seemed to have basically disappeared. Then the next job I did in Georgia was between Georgia and Washington, D.C., and I helped establish a research center on organized crime and corruption in the Caucasus. And this was a very interesting time because this was more or less open. Uh, this was under Shevardnadze. There was uh, open bribe taking and giving. There was open trading of contraband goods along the highways of, of, uh, of the country. And I really got involved in and what was happening there and, and really um, just captivated by the, by the place. And so I arrived at graduate school in 2004 with, with all these diverse interests, but basically all of them relating to Georgia. And I imagined that I would pursue one of them, that I would, for example, do something on Georgian food or do something on uh, Georgians in the underground economy of the Soviet Union or Georgians in organized crime. Yuri Sleskin, who's my advisor, basically suggested in one conversation we had, you know, why not? look at them in connection with one another uh, and look at how, for example, these, these seemingly dis- distinctive trends, you know, this Georgian political networks, Georgian economic networks, Georgian cultural networks were manifestations of, of this Georgian diaspora. And this was a time when there was a, a lot of interest in thinking about this, the Soviet Union as an empire. I think this is still a very uh, promising field of inquiry, but, but basically there had been a shift in the late 90s from, from looking at nationalities and isolation from one another to to looking at this multi-ethnic state and the nationalities and combinations. So this was this was a, a I think a, an interesting way to, to get at some of these larger issues. Well let's talk about the the you know Russian Empire and the Soviet Union as imperial states because you do have a really good comprehensive discussion of it. So how, how do you understand both of these as imperial states and and what does looking at it from the perspective of a diaspora give you that adds to our understanding of it. Well, my work definitely builds on some very important studies that have been done. Terry Martin's book, The Affirmative Action Empire, uh, Francine Hirsch's book, Empire of Nations. But what I wanted to do is look at empire, not just from the perspective of imperial administrators uh, or ethnographers, but really look at it from from those who were participating in empire and, and not just in non-Russian groups, not simply as you know, being on the receiving end of restrictive policies. And in looking at the Georgians, and I don't want to say the Georgians are a typical diaspora, but they do give us this this entree into incredible mobility of nationalities in, in the Soviet Union. Encourage me to think of the, the USSR not just as a federation of these separate republics, but as this empire of diasporas. And think of the ways that these nationalities spilled beyond these internal borders and the ways in which these groups, non-Russian groups, were not just intermediaries, but in many cases, the, the actual builders of empire. And so this, I think, further blurs the lines between colonizer and colonized, between center and periphery. And you know, even after you can talk about some consolidation of the state in the 30s and, and some consolidation of, of ethnic hierarchies, but even after that, I think it never quite is a Russian-dominated empire. It's a state in which certainly Moscow is at the center, Moscow is ruling over an ethnically defined periphery, but the center is itself constituted by and 
seeks to manage a whole range of mobile ethnic groups, many of them propelled into the center by this revolution. And so the revolution is this, this incredible upheaval of nationalities. And the Soviet Union, in comparison to, to past empires, uh, I think goes further in, in engendering and managing difference through nationality. That is to say that as much as they seek to rein in these nationalities outside national borders and do not allow them to formally organize as diasporas, the, the passport regime, which identifies people by nationality, so a Georgian born in Moscow, to three generations of Georgians born in Moscow will be labeled as a Georgian in their passport. The infrastructure of mobility, the way the centralization of the system around Moscow really engenders and propels these diasporas to the center. And so, I mean, I, first of all, I think that empire and diaspora are useful. You know, there's a lot of debate about, about whether these terms are appropriate, uh, how these terms are used. And, and I do wade into that to some extent, but I think their ultimate utility is, is, is the comparative uses of them. And so I think looking at Georgians and thinking of the Soviet empire through their perspective gives us a new way of thinking about the Soviet Union in comparison to other empires and Georgians in comparison to other diasporas. And so I thought a lot about different parallels. Uh, there are, I think, most obviously the Eurasian ones. You can think about the Ottoman Empire, which is also an empire in which the largest national group, Turks, are not necessarily at the center of empire. And you have Armenians in the commercial elite. You have Farnariot Greeks in the commercial elite. We can also think of Imperial Russia, which has a dynasty and an ideology at the center rather than necessarily Russian, the Russian people at the center. Most of them are, are peasants. And so you have Baltic Germans, you have in, in, in politics you and uh, military, you have Roma or gypsies in entertainment and even other empires. I mean, I, I really think we need to think of an empire and the comparative side of the empire in terms not just of how the Soviet Union matches up with European empires, but what the Soviet Union can tell us about things that we we might not see otherwise see in European empires. That is to say that, that you know, to take, rather than borrowing models and applying them to the Soviet Union, thinking about how we can generate models of empire in the Russian and Soviet case and apply them to Europe and thinking about other empires, for example, the British Empire, which by most accounts has this, this island and this nation at the center, you know, the role of, of groups like the Celtic fringe, what's called the Celtic fringe, you know, Scots and Irish as both colonized and, 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 and creators of empire, often overseas. And so, so this is one range of comparisons. The other is, is using the Georgians to think about, to develop a typology of diasporas within the Soviet Union. Again, while I wouldn't say they are typical, they do, I think, fall somewhere in the middle. And if you think of a spectrum uh, from familiarity to strangeness, where those more familiar might include Ukrainians, Belarusians, who are very prominent. You could think about Ukrainians in the Red Army. You could think about the mobilization of these groups in industry. But you know, over generations, many of these groups come to identify themselves as Russians, and even in census categories. On the other hand, they, the Georgians are more familiar than than Central Asians. They, their integration really begins in the late imperial period, and drastically furthered by by revolution. And this is also something that makes them a little different than, say, Baltic nationalities, which with the exception of a few groups like Latvian riflemen who are around around Lenin, largely joined later amidst World War II. And so this let's let's actually talk about the role of the revolution because 
you have some, you know, really fascinating stories, particularly about Sergo Jadakidze and, of course, Stalin, but I want to talk about Stalin separate. And you talk about them as Georgian revolutionaries, people who are coming up from Georgia, find themselves into the, in the revolutionary movement, into Petrograd during the revolution, and of course, into the Soviet state. And then they're also, Jadakidze is a good example of this, they're patrons for other Georgians. So talk about the Georgian footprint on Russia's revolutionary movement and the Soviet state. Well, what I try to look at is a Georgian revolution within the Russian revolution. And I think this this in many ways explains this dramatic mobilization because Georgians, in comparison to say Jews or Armenians, do not have this long-standing tradition of diaspora. You know, in many ways, this this dramatic mobilization. When I was thinking of parallels, I thought actually of other groups who are who are propelled by by these drastic changes uh, in in the 19th century, um, the Italian migration to the U.S., the Lebanese migration to Latin America, and so thinking about this in the Soviet context and thinking about this in the literature of on the the revolution, I really tried to to locate the origins of this group and, and saw the origins of this group in this incredible imperial ferment in the Caucasus. And this is, I wasn't the first person to to notice this. I mean, Ron Suni long ago had talked about how nationalism and socialism had come together in some ways conflicted, in other ways complemented each other in the Caucasus. But I, I settled on Orjana first because he was someone that kept coming up in the documents. Second, because I had read uh, Oleg Klevniuk's um, interesting study of him, and also because I I wanted to to not just write a book about Stalin, because my argument was that Stalin was very much a product of this revolution, that he certainly furthers furthers this network, but he comes up with it. And so, so Orjan Akidze really, I think, epitomizes this generation of Georgian Bolsheviks. He's born into this impoverished noble family in Western Georgia. He's educated in Tbilisi, like many Georgians and this is in contrast to other groups, very much interested in both national assertion, but in participation in empire-wide revolutionary networks, rather than separating into their own national revolutionary group, like, say, the Jewish Bund or the uh, Armenian Dashnak Sution. Like many in his cohort, uh, at a certain point, uh, is forced to flee Georgia to Baku, is promoted by Lenin as, as a non-Russian, uh, is in and out of prison, uh, but largely out of Georgia, and returns to Georgia finally in 1921 at the, the head of the Red Army, so that the, when the Red Army captures Georgia, it's with, with Georgians uh, at the forefront. And there's lots of score settling that happens with local Georgian Mensheviks, who in many ways were enmeshed, had been enmeshed in some of the same networks that originated in the same revolution, but as with many family disputes, it was a heated one. It's criticized by Lenin for his quote-unquote great Russian chauvinism, but I think very much remains grounded in this, in the sentiment and in the networks that he came up with. And so the bonds of loyalty that are forged in this revolutionary underground among Georgian Bolsheviks are, are incredibly strong. They're incredibly enduring. I think they're more enduring and, and more sustainable and take greater institutional form than, say, bonds uh, formed in, in among prison groups or among among other categories of, of people who had been exiled. And so you have this internationalism with a strong degree of national sentiment and identity. And you have, I think Orjan Akidze also gives us a sense that there's, you know, there's a larger, what was called a Caucasian group uh, around Stalin. And this is not just composed of Georgians, although it has a strong Georgian flavor to it with people like Orjan Akidze, Yenukidze, the, the chairman of the presidium of the Central Executive Committee, 
but also Anastas Mikoyan, ethnic Armenian, educated in Tbilisi, and even you could say Kirov, who who had made his party career in, in Azerbaijan. And this group rises uh, dramatically and also falls dramatically, uh, largely after the the suicide of Orjan Akidze in 1937. And so, so in looking at these patronage networks, I mean, there's some very interesting documents that uh, I found. Many documents in this group are written bilingually. That is, they're written partly in Russian and partly in Georgian. And you can see the ways that these appeals are framed in, in ethnic terms through the use of language and very different important shifts in tone and content, depending on whether one, one is writing in Russian or in Georgian. And so one of the examples I give is you know, when Orjan Akitsi's star had ascended and he was in Moscow, he's receiving these letters from former comrades, people like Shava Eliava, who's posted to Kazakhstan and who writes him this long letter in Russian with shift at the end from a, a very, one might say, speaking Bolshevik type of tone of duty before party to this this personal appeal to to intercede and to help him and appealing to these old bonds in, in the Georgian language. And actually, you can see how this leads to a dr- dramatic promotion that Eliyav is transferred to Moscow and becomes deputy commissar of foreign trade. Uh, Orjan Akidze, as none other, can, can appeal to Stalin. And so he writes, you know, Soso, as he called Stalin, Soso being the diminutive of, of Joseph in Georgian uh, so, so here's Eliava's letter. You know, I'm sending it on to you. And so there was all sorts of maneuvering within this group. And this group uh, came up around Stalin. Uh, Stalin managed it. Uh, sometimes he sought to to rein it in a bit. He does move against the use of Georgian language in an institutional setting, although he still is using it in personal letters, uh, which have a largely political content, and then largely discards them uh, by the late 1930s. Although you continue to see uh, you know, I think there are pathways established for cadres coming out of Georgia, and you can t- continue to see them uh, in a somewhat different form with, with Beria's uh, police networks, which become rather extensive, but are always much more subsumed to Stalin's command. You know, there's no, no sense of lateral comradeship. There's, you know, there's, a, there's a clear sense of hierarchy. And so being able to analyze these documents and use, use Georgian, which, which was you know, a very important language, and in some ways a code language because it's so different from Russian that it was you know, hardly understood by, by anyone else. But it gives us a new insight into this group because, you know, a lot of this, the study of, of Stalin. Yeah, let's, let's talk about Stalin because, you know, one of the things that has been debated is, you know, how much is Stalin Georgian? And, and what you show is, is really fascinating how he, he still maintains a very direct connection with relatives from Georgia, some of which he and, and people he went to school with as a schoolboy, he brings them to Moscow. They're working in the Kremlin. He um, Georgian food plays a very big role, not only in his own personal tastes, but in the lavish dinners that he throws for diplomats, but also party members and people in his circle. So talk about the role of being Georgian for Stalin in the context of the Kremlin in the 1930s, and also his dacha, which is in Abkhazia, one of his dachas. And that's also a very important place for this Georgian culture to be performed and, and ritualized. Certainly, I wasn't the first to discover that Stalin was Georgian, but you know, his Georgian is, is often is, is treated as an explanatory factor, usually to explain why he was so violent, either as some, some supposed cultural feature of Georgian culture because of the tumult of the Imperial Revolutionary Caucasus. And then in contrast, some might say, you know, he wasn't Georgian enough and that he attacked his compatriots 
he's accused of being a great Russian chauvinist, even that he didn't attend his mother's funeral, which is taken as some some form of betrayal. And I don't really find any of these convincing. I mean, they tend to essentialize what what a Georgian is supposed to be rather than looking at Georgianness as something that is is participated in and, and performed. And so I, I see him as a product of the same late imperial ferment in the Caucasus. This is someone who, who lives in Georgia until he's 27. So this is someone who's very much formed in a Georgian context, uh, then goes off uh, outside of Georgia uh, to Baku, then to Siberia, then to the Imperial Russian Center, but continues to, in many ways, capitalize on his Georgianness. His first post is as Commissar of Nationalities, and I think his, the fact that he's a non-Russian uh, really allows him to position himself as, as someone who can manage multi-ethnic diversity. And he remains someone that's very much connected to where he came from and very much a participant in in certain forms of sociability that are Georgian. But I think in comparison to someone like Sergo or Janikidze is willing to go further in pursuit of revolution. And uh, at some point he actually counsels Orjanikidze on the need to separate the personal from the political. And so Stalin is is constructing this 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 political self even as he's very enmeshed in networks from emerging from the Georgian Republic. He continues to be, even after the demise of the Caucasus group, very hands-on when it comes to Georgian cultural production, uh, very ha- hands-on in editing the script of this of this movie, uh, Georgi Saakadze, uh, which comes out in 1942, which deals with a very interesting character, which is a character who is Georgian but serves the, the Persian Shah and returns to his home country and turns against the Shah. And so it's very much about this dance between the national and, and the imperial he continues to be very involved in managing the terms of his representation as a Georgian, which he sometimes emphasizes and other times tries to diminish or, or downplay. And uh, really until the very end, not only is his Russian language heavily accented uh, with a Georgian accent, but he's does have, as you mentioned, these childhood friends, these people who he feels are loyal to him coming from Georgia. And he, he uses uh, this Georgian cultural context to not just in a, an explicitly political sense to sort of say that I am someone who understands that this is a multi-ethnic state and uh, I'm representative of this multi-ethnic, new multi-ethnic order, uh, but also uh, uses the, the rituals of the Georgian table as a, a tool, as you said, of, of Soviet statecraft. Everyone I know, and I'm sure it's the same for you, and you got interested in this topic partially through Georgian food, and everybody I know who's gone to Russia loves Georgian food. And Georgian food plays a big role in part of your study, uh, not only in terms of what it means for Soviet statecraft, but the way it proliferates through Soviet society and becomes domesticated for a mass palate. So talk talk about the role of Georgian food in statecraft and, and Soviet society. Well, when it comes to statecraft, again, I think this is the right right word to use for it because when you when you talk about the the Caucasus group, this is a group whose bonds are preserved and affirmed through the rituals of the table. And the rituals of the table in Georgia are are rather distinctive and why I don't want to say that they've haven't evolved over time. There is a particular set of rituals that come from the late imperial period and go on into the early Soviet period that have highly formalized roles around the table. Uh, 
particularly for the tamada, the toastmaster, who's 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 giving these elaborate toasts, a great emphasis on demonstrative consumption, uh, hospitality, and and a particularly festive atmosphere that you know can be both celebratory but also you know takes on a somewhat threatening and oppressive characteristic uh, in these extremely long and ritualized meals under Stalin. And so these are these are rituals that those around him know how to participate in. Even non-Georgians learn to to adapt and maneuver around the table. And people who come to the Soviet Union are just simply astounded that so much of the affairs of state is conducted around the around the dinner table. And Stalin very carefully, I think, because he's you know, in this in this this inner circle is one to to both inspire fear, but also to very subtly move from position to position and not simply give give everything as a top down order, but to to encourage people to to find what he what he wants and to, to find his meaning, which is sometimes conveyed in a toast. And you know, perhaps the most famous toast is is this speech he gives uh, in honor of the Russian people after the war. But this becomes a part of Soviet political culture, and it spreads out from the Kremlin to this restaurant, Aragvi, which is built in central Moscow. It becomes a popular haunt of Beria and, and others, and also an important way, and this is where we might talk about how certain things come together to complement one another. You have the fact that this is, yes, the food of Stalin, and this is, by participating in these rituals, we are closer to the center of power. But it also emerges at a time the restaurant Aragvi emerges at a time when there is a, a need to give rewards to this burgeoning, what you might call Soviet middle class, and, and also showcase the state's multi-ethnic nature. And so the fact that, the state, that this, all these things can be met by the promotion of Georgian food, and you have these entrepreneurs from Georgia who are promoting it, and in fact, the restaurant is set up under the auspices of the Georgian Ministry of Trade in central Moscow. So it's in many ways run by these outside institutions, but serving people in the center. All of this propels this restaurant forward, so it really becomes the most prominent restaurant in the capital, the first of many different national restaurants that are established, the, the prototype for them. And in looking at the ways that Soviet food comes to the fore, you know, it's through institutions like this. And then, as I mentioned, the centralization of the system allows these things to diffuse themselves throughout the Soviet empire. So Georgians go from the restaurant, you see people, networks of people and, and key individuals go from the restaurant to the system of Pitania, uh, the public food service, promoting Georgian food uh, to the masses in cafeterias and then in cookbooks uh, where it reaches a Soviet kitchen. And so I think this culinary perspective is a really interesting way to think about internal diasporas and in that you have explicit state promotion that meets the state's ideological goals. But you also have this entrepreneurship from below and these unexpected combinations of different nationalities where one might set a table with you know, Georgian lobio, the bean dish, and, and satsivi, the, the chicken or turkey dish with a, with a nut sauce, but also you know, a salad, uh, one of these carrot salads from the Korean diaspora, you know, liqueurs from, from the Baltic states, Armenian cognac. And so you have this mixing of different products of that are all really promoted by these internal diasporas because they are often produced in the periphery but they're they're promoted by the center they're 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 distributed by the center and so i think that the the dinner table is an interesting way to think about this and think about this evolution and 
think about the ways in which, yes, Stalin is at the center of some of this stuff, uh, but it also precedes him in the sense that this is the, 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 the culture of the Georgian table precedes him and also continues on after him in unexpected ways and takes on all sorts of new meanings to the extent to which the Iraqvi actually becomes you know, one of the coolest and most popular, what was called a sort of a cult, cult spot or cult restaurant among the, um, the artistic intelligentsia of Moscow and by the late 70s, and uh, is really seen as something perhaps, if not you know, anti Soviet and not, not really connected with Stalin. This is sort of a lavish and an un-Soviet un maybe uh, location and place of celebration. And um, and all this also uh, an important factor is, is is in this is the promotion of Georgia uh, to the Soviet people as this tourist destination. And so not only is Stalin vacationing there, and I think you know, to go back to your last question, this is an important thing because this gives gives Georgians a unique access to the leader, the fact that he's vacationing there and that, that this they are responsible for provisioning the dacha and so much stuff happens at the dacha, uh, but also that Soviets can themselves go to Georgia and there's all sorts of exchanges, scripted and unscripted, that play out in the, in the Southern Republic. Let's talk about these Georgian diaspora communities after Stalin's death and, and what keeps them together? What kind of personal, kind of personal cultural and economic networks function throughout these communities, not only in the Russian Republic, but elsewhere? Well, I think after the death of Stalin, you, you certainly have no prominent Georgians, after the death of Beria, I should say, you have no prominent Georgians in central political positions until Edward Shevardnadze is appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs in the 80s. And so you have a shift from the political networks to these cultural and economic networks. And some of this is again managed by the state. There are there are huge protests in Tbilisi in 1956, which are ostensibly about demonstrating against the secret speech and demonstrating against the failure to mark the third anniversary of Stalin's death, but are in many ways about about national assertion and and about the the sense of connection with the center that's lost with the demise of Stalin and his networks. And so the state moves to promote Georgian culture, and this is when you have these tours throughout the Soviet Union and then abroad of Georgian song and dance ensembles, which have been founded earlier, but are are really reinvigorating. And also, uh, I think, greater tolerance for experimentation in the Republic when it comes to cultural things. And so you have the, the origination in Georgia of the first vocal instrumental ensemble, basically the first officially sanctioned Soviet rock band, Orera, and this sense that you can sort of go further in Georgia with when it comes to cultural production, when it comes to economic production, and use Soviet infrastructure to promote this throughout the Soviet Union. In addition, when it comes to the cultural stuff abroad, because many of these people are able then to travel abroad and showcase Soviet multi-ethnicity. And so in terms of what, what holds this together, I mean, these are very, in some ways, very different networks. Uh, the political group is a particular network that you know, the, the group I look at originated at a certain time and place. The cultural Cultural groups uh, tend more often than not to come from Tbilisi, come from a slightly different social background. The economic groups, uh, like the political groups, also tend to come from the countryside, uh, but seek advancement through more informal means. So, you know, we can talk about these different diaspora communities, and you know, I, one might say Georgian diasporas, but I think there are there are certain similarities here. The ways that all of these groups appeal to one another in certain particularistic ways that are both about national self-assertion, but also about 
gaining imperial prominence. And the ways in which these groups resort to, appeal to, create, and transform this repertoire of performance that's both known to its members and also recognizable to outsiders. And one of the the key points of balancing, because you know, at my at the center of this story is a real tension of balancing between the imperial and the national, uh, between and the ways in which performance is both about affirming these bonds and building these networks, but also needs to be rendered and 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 translated in intelligible form for for Russian largely Russian audiences. And so this has to do with food, uh, where you have this shift in Georgian recipes to appeal to the Russian palate uh, in, uh, in cultural performance where you have this, this hybrid blending of, of Georgian dance traditions and Russian ballet. Many of the, the leaders of these ensembles have been trained in, in Moscow ballet schools uh, and also in, in these economic networks where they're providing certain products that have to be sort of known and recognizable to Soviet citizens. Let me, let me ask you about this, because you have this concept that runs the theme that can runs through the book and runs through your study of, of Georgians as both strange but familiar. And you've talked a lot about the efforts of being familiar, right, to, to you know, get spread Georgian food, Georgian culture. But I'm, I'm also curious about the strange in the sense of, you know, is there a certain exoticism of Georgian culture or Georgian people that also feeds into a desire and interest of, say, you know, Russians into in Georgian culture? I would say there certainly is. And this is a longstanding feature of, of Russian culture. And you could go back to the Russian liter- literary tradition of the 19th century, where you have people like Pushkin and Lermontov, you know, the formative authors of the Russian canon. Uh, speaking about the Caucasus and speaking about Georgia in certain ways. And so this framework does does exist. I think what happens in the late imperial period is that you have this burgeoning sense of Georgian nationalism, this push for cultural autonomy, but it happens within this imperial context. And so, so Georgian culture, it's very difficult to sort of separate late imperial Russian culture and late imperial Georgian culture. They emerge together. And there is a very delicate dance that's done by members of this diaspora in which they are both appealing to these established categories, uh, but also attempting to manage the terms of their own self-representation. And so I would describe it as as an auto-orientalism or an auto-exoticism, an auto-ethnography, where they are in many ways emphasizing the ways in which they are different and strange, that, that even though founders of these national dance ensembles were trained at the Bolshoi, that they're emphasizing the difference that comes from a Georgian context. And this, I think, has to do with the the rooted nature of this diaspora, the fact that they can go back, unlike other diasporas, to their homeland and appeal to it and use its institutions. And so this is a very elaborate, as I said, and delicate dance. And it's one that uh, becomes, I think, harder to do because the revolution is filled with this idea that, that center and periphery of the distance will collapse, that there's all these avenues of participation for these groups, that they can they can forge this repertoire of performance, a repertoire that yes has to be familiar, but also emphasizes otherness, emphasizes distinctions, reinforced by concepts of Soviet nationality, which say that every every nation has their own dance, their own food, their own cultural practices, their own 
psychological makeup, as Stalin says. But this repertoire be, sort of solidifies and becomes increasingly constricting. And so, you know, it can be appealed to in, in a mass culture. Uh, you see it around the dinner table. You see it in the marketplace. You see it with this the Soviet estrada. But uh, intellectuals and particularly the Georgian intelligentsia of the, the 60s and 70s increasingly see it as, as constricting and increasingly see the, the compromises that had to be made to, to reach imperial prominence as degrading and undermining the, the very bases of, of Georgian national distinction. By the end of the Soviet period, so w- what happens with Georgian nationality and identity in, in Russia in late Soviet society? And then how did they, Georgian, these Georgian diasporas weather the collapse of the Soviet Union? I think you have many things happening at the end of the Soviet period. And one thing in my book, although it is in some ways about the rise and fall of the Soviet empire, like many others, I don't think this this fall was necessarily preordained or that there was a sense that uh, things would end up with with collapse. I think you had this, this push for cultural autonomy in Georgia, uh, much as you did actually in the late Imperial Russian period, where most Georgian intellectuals does not start off wanting national independence, but wanting cultural autonomy. At the same time, you have all these other entrepreneurs in the marketplace, varying degrees of, of illegality there. You have the, the fruit traders who are appealing to repertoires of otherness, who are, who are performing Georgianness, who are or offering products that are associated with Georgia. You also have organized crime groups that are emphasizing their Georgian aspects. You know, there's there's incredible prominence of Georgians among the thieves-in-law, the votive Zakonya, and many of them have these these nicknames that refer to their Georgian origins. But among the intelligentsia who are also a late Soviet product and also inhabit these institutions that are funded by the state, I think you have a, a crisis of authenticity. And this is not unique, again, just to Georgia. But I think the fact that this group had emphasized otherness becomes a key issue in which you know, thinking about this, this repertoire, thinking about the ways in which what I call domestic internationalism really domesticated Georgian culture and, and forced a set menu on the restaurant, forced a set repertoire on stage. And I use Georgian cinema as a way of, of looking at these things because uh, I really think you see this really from the, from the 60s with you know, Otario Saliani's uh, film Falling Leaves, which looks at corruption and mismanagement and, and really apathy at a Georgian wine factory, this, this institution that's set up to provide a Georgian, a famed Georgian product to the Soviet table. Uh, then you have Eldar Shingalaya's uh, Blue Mountains, this great, very ironic satire of, of life at a Soviet Georgian publishing house. And then the shift to outright condemnation with Tengiz Ebuladze's uh, Repentance was probably the best known Georgian film that comes out in 84. And one thing that's often lost in this in this movie, which is seen as a as a critique of Stalin, and so then it resonates both in Georgia and also in a in the larger Soviet Union because he was a, a figure that really belonged to the entire Soviet Union. You have both local and imperial critique uh, of this character, and there's a lot of um, in the Georgian version, which is you know harder to to uh, to get because this dubbed version was released. But you have this shift the way he shifts between Russian and Georgian, the way he sort of takes on some of the trappings of Georgian culture while betraying, you know, the the what Abuladze posits is the moral mission behind them and behind the intelligentsia. And so with the collapse of the Soviet system, I mean it one of the interesting things is that Abuladze and others, this late Soviet intelligentsia, really seems positioned 
Uh, I mean, the fact that this film was first of all made and that was so widely acclaimed really positions them at the center of of the late Soviet state. And you know, he's elected to the Congress of People's Deputies, which, as you know, meets generates all this debate is is a is a this televised event, but ultimately uh, loses power and. You know, I think with with the collapse and with the rise of nationalism in Georgia, there is this explicit rejection of of this late Soviet intelligentsia, which was advocating for cultural autonomy, but is seen by by this nationalist uh, movement in Georgia as tainted by Soviet participation. And so you you have many different trajectories after collapse. You have uh, certainly continued appreciation for Georgian food. And, um, you know, I've seen this in recent visits to Moscow, you know, Georgian food now seems to match not only Soviet trends, but also global food trends where you can go to you know, Georgian restaurants, to emphasize organic, organic Georgian wine. And uh, I think I even saw gluten-free hachapuri uh, in my last visit to Moscow. So you have the food, you have the material culture, you have this, this connection, you have some nostalgia for, for the, the cultural products coming out of Georgia uh, from the thaw years onward. But you also have a very different diaspora coming out of Georgia, one that is much larger in terms of numbers, uh, significantly larger in terms of numbers, but also more more impoverished. And the ways in which this diaspora, which by the end of the Soviet period felt constrained by the Soviet state, really uh, loses its its the its niches uh, at the end of the Soviet period, says a lot about the nature of the Soviet Empire and the ways in which this emphasis on domestic production, whether it be cultural, political, economic, gave this diaspora a set of resources and, and allowed them to mobilize and move uh, within this state in which, uh, yes, there were some groups that were constrained in movement. There were some groups that were forced to move, but there was also a, a whole range of movement based on opportunity. And so I think it's really striking the extent to which there's still some sense that this is, yes, this is a repertoire of Georgianness. If you talk to Russians, you know, and talk to them about Georgia, many of them have stories of either time they spent there, Georgian friends they knew at university, Georgian food, you know, you'll find Lobio. I mean, one of my, my Russian host family made Lobio and this, you know, I, I know many Russians who make their own Lobio, make their own satsivi. Um, but you really have the, the change of the, this diaspora and the loss of its its imperial prominence, and um, which I think says something about post-Soviet Georgia, but also post-Soviet Russia, and that this diaspora really changes in some important ways. It's larger, has many different places it can go besides besides Russia. Uh, you know, the organized crime networks go where the money is, which is uh, the big money is outside of Russia in places like Spain, Austria, uh, Switzerland, but you also have all sorts of other groups. And, you know, one thing that you see in the Soviet period is uh, many of these groups, particularly the political groups and the economic groups are largely male. Uh, but one development that's happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union is you have a large scale female migration from Georgian villages of women going to countries in the EU to work as uh, caregivers uh, for the elderly. And so you have all these different strands and, uh, and outside, obviously, outside of Soviet or post-Soviet context, this repertoire is completely unknown. And so it's a very different set of resources that this group has in a very different context. 
That was Eric Scott, Associate Professor of History at the University of Kansas and author of Familiar Strangers, The Georgian Diaspora and the Evolution of Soviet Empire, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Hazy ways, my blazing arrow. The race that range from Asia way to Rio de Janeiro. A crazy crave, oh, look, today's the day that in a major way I make you say, oh, look, you saved the day and also paved the way. Working my just like razor blades today and days away from now, okay, okay. I'm like a laser ray, keeping the stage of play. Dangerous ways, dropping the phrase that pays all day, the same effect. But ageless ways, a cagey great displays, oh, hey, the same again. Those days away, that's if you came to play, you'll all behave insane. After we change the game, it won't remain the same. So make your days and play this tape in your Camaro. Amazing phase of deja, hazy ways, my blazing arrow. The verbal door, I throw a murder or my phone and kill him. But learning all and so I'm growing while I'm learning with him. Inferno Alex flow, we turning out the globe about the blow. I'll get up out of your seat, head on out the zones that I patrol. I rock and roll, I tear you out the soul like drugs and alcohol. I knock your whole kaboggin for a loop and out the doubt will flow. Not the bro you wanna knock, cause on the real I got the glow. Cosmic poses, I suppose it's high supposed to be and got to go. Had you know intuition, I was on the old snake surface. Figure out your purpose, that's impossible. Logic won't disturb the thought of focus. What is not is all about to grow about the kind of home that's only got